Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Kraus. In this episode, we get to talk to one of our own Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology graduate students, Liz Laudadio. Liz is a regular contributor to the podcast. You might remember her from the episode where I interviewed her about Norwegian Prime Minister Gru Harlem Brundtland, or from the episode where she interviewed Dr. Margaret Schott about the history of Dr. Catherine Burr Blodgett. But finally, this time, we get to talk to Liz about her own research. She was recently the first author on a paper that came out in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. It was called Impact of Phosphate Adsorption on Complex Cobalt Oxide Nanoparticle Dispersibility in Aqueous Media. So, believe it or not, after you listen to this episode, you will totally understand what that means. (laughs) So without further ado, here is my interview with Liz Laudadio. Thank you for joining us uh, with the Sustainable Nano podcast again. Great to have you back. Do you want to remind us really quickly uh, who you are? Yeah, um, my name is Liz Ladadio. I am a fourth year graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison working in the group of um, Professor Robert Hamers, who's the director of the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology. Great. And so how did you get interested in chemistry in the first place? How did you end up in this program at, at Madison? That's a great question. When I was younger, I certainly didn't expect to uh, become a chemist, and I never really thought about graduate school until I was an undergrad in college. Um, But I think that I sort of found chemistry pretty organically, no pun intended. (laughs) I was originally really interested in biology. I loved my high school biology classes. But once I got to college, I went to Mount Holyoke College, and I fell in love with the subject, especially through my professor and research advisor, who was a really inspiring mentor and really helped me gain the confidence to say, I am a chemist and I, I want to pursue a PhD. So that's kind of how I, I fell into chemistry. Do you want to give a shout out to who that professor was? Oh, yeah. Uh, that is Professor Wei Chen at Mount Holyoke College, who I owe a lot of this to. She's wonderful. Cool. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. How did you end up then? Yeah, no. So I looked at um, a number of different graduate schools in chemistry And I visited several as well. And what really stuck out to me about Madison was I felt immediately supported from the minute I got here. Like people already knew my name. They were welcoming me. I was really inspired by the collaborative nature of the department and uh, how approachable all the faculty and staff seemed. And my instincts were right. It's a really wonderful department and I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. So we're talking today because you recently were the first author on a new paper that came out um, as part of the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology Research. So can you tell us just like a really quick kind of overview? What's the what's the big deal about this paper? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been studying something we call nanoparticle transformations. So if you've been keeping up with the work the CSN has been doing, you may know that we've been looking a lot at the biological impact of complex metal oxide nanomaterials, which are high volume materials that are used primarily in cathodes of lithium ion batteries. And so we've looked a lot at their toxicity and the dissolution of these materials and how it impacts a few different biological systems. But this is sort of one of the first steps the center has taken to consider how does the environment that a nanoparticle is in actually change the properties of the nanoparticle. And so I was looking specifically at lithium cobalt oxide, which is a complex metal oxide, and how it interacts with phosphate, which is an environmentally relevant molecule. 
And basically what we find is that in the presence of phosphate, the properties of these nanomaterials are drastically changed. Um, and this is sort of a first step into the potential impact of the environment to actually change the properties and therefore the fate of nanoparticles that are released. So can you tell a little bit more about these lithium cobalt oxides? So what does it mean to be a complex metal oxide and, and what does that have to do with nanotechnology? Yeah, um, specifically complex metal oxides that we are looking at are lithium intercalation compounds. So in a lithium ion battery, you shuttle lithium from the cathode to the anode, and that is the process of charging and then discharging a battery. And so these materials are more complex in nature due to this intercalation. Uh, lithium cobalt oxide is a single component complex metal oxide where it's just uh, cobalt in the core structure we also study several more complex metal oxides in the center, such as NMC you may have heard of, which is lithium nickel manganese cobalt oxide, which is the same structure as lithium cobalt oxide, uh, just with more metals in it. And so lithium cobalt oxide is sort of one of the first cathode materials that was discovered. And in recent years, there's been a push to uh, move away from the fully cobalt material and introduce more metals like nickel and manganese to both decrease the cost and increase the capacity and efficiency of these materials. So cobalt is just generally more expensive than... Yeah, yeah. And more of a limited resource. So what that all has to do with nano is that there's a push to be exploring the benefits of going to nano for energy storage. Uh, specifically for batteries, it's been shown that um, having smaller particles will allow for faster charging and discharging since there are smaller, shorter distances that the lithium has to travel to uh, intercalate or go inside the material. Um, and so with that, uh, the CSN has been focused on nanoparticles of these complex oxide materials as sort of a forward thinking philosophy of, you know, these may be incorporated more and more readily into these types of battery materials. Okay, so that makes sense. So you're dealing with these lithium cobalt oxide nanoparticles, and then you mentioned phosphates, and I know the title of the article has this term phosphate adsorption. Yeah. So what is that talking about? And actually, maybe even first, like, I feel like I've heard the term phosphate in terms of, like, buying laundry detergent when it's it's more eco-friendly to yeah. buy detergent without phosphate. So what does that mean? And yeah. Right. So phosphate is a really important molecule in general. It's, um, it is present in environmental waters at low concentrations. It's also an important molecule or building block for um, biological systems. So for instance, DNA has phosphate-containing backbones. So it is an important molecule. However, you know, one of the impacts of different industrialization and also agriculture has been that there's been an excess of phosphate that has been getting into the environment. So from personal care products, like you mentioned, or detergents, um, and also from fertilizers. And so one of the negative side effects of this is that more phosphate is being released or put into the environment than it can really sustain. So it's like too much of a good thing. Exactly. So one of the big problems with this, and it's something we see um, a lot in Madison in the summers, is that if natural waters like lakes have an excess of phosphate, it can promote something called eutrophication, which is a condition in which algae grow and multiply at a kind of enhanced rate. 
Um, and this causes something called algal blooms. So if you've ever seen a lake in the summer that has kind of a lot of algae on it and they tell you you can't go swimming, that's kind of one of the reasons that that can happen. And this is kind of a detrimental effect for other aquatic life, such as fish, who then are not able to thrive as readily since like oxygen is being consumed by these algal blooms. So there are definitely some negative side effects of having too much phosphate around. I see. But there's always some phosphate, which is why this study is important. So even if we clean up the excess phosphates that get into the environment, any nanoparticles that end up in water are going to be exposed to phosphates no matter what. Yes. Yeah. And within different water systems, different lakes and, and different you know rivers, those sorts of things are all going to have their own sort of balance of the amount of phosphate that's present. Got it. So then what's the take home of what you found when you did this exposure? What was the result? Yeah, you know, this is, as I mentioned, kind of one of the first looks at these sorts of effects. Lithium cobalt oxide, when it's used in a battery, is in a non-aqueous environment. So there's not water around. And so people who do battery research, they're not really looking at how these materials interact with water because they're just focusing on the battery side of things. And so in the center, we're a bit more focused on that end of life idea. There's currently no federally instated infrastructure for recycling and disposal of these batteries. A lot of them end up in landfills. And so this is one of the main reasons we're considering, okay, what's going to happen if these materials are released? So whenever you start sort of a complex problem like that of, you know, wanting to understand how a material interacts with something as significant as, quote unquote, the environment, it's kind of important to break it down. So we chose phosphate as kind of a model because we know it's an important molecule. We know it's present in the environment. Um, and there's also precedent for it interacting with metals and metal oxides. For instance, inorganic phosphate coatings are often employed on things like pipes to prevent metal leaching. So a lack of these types of coatings is actually one of the causes of the Flint water crisis. So, you know, there's precedent for the idea that phosphate can interact with these types of materials, which is one of the reasons we wanted to study it. Right. So that explains kind of how, why this study is so environmentally relevant, sure. which is great. But so what did you find? What was the conclusion yeah. overall? Right. What we found, uh, we used a lot of different techniques to sort of analyze how these two things interacted, the lithium cobalt oxide and the phosphate. And in general, doing nanoparticle studies and surface chemistry studies is really difficult because you're dealing with really small materials and really small areas that you're trying to probe. And luckily, uh, with all the resources of the CSN, we have access to a lot of different techniques that can actually get at these really, really small changes. And so what we found was that phosphate, when exposed to these particles, adsorbs to the surface, so it sticks to them. And this adsorption is irreversible over the timescales that we studied. So even at really low concentrations of phosphate, those that we consider to be environmentally relevant for non-polluted systems, we see that phosphate sticks to the surface of the nanoparticles. And how long, so you said for the time scale of the experiment, but how long is that? Is it like three hours or like right. a year? <laughs> yeah, so for the work that I've published, it's on the order of a couple of hours. But since publishing, I've done some more extensive studies that show phosphate remains on the surface even after rinsing with water for 10 hours or even after being exposed to the solution for six months. So this type of adsorption we're finding is really robust. And we think in the long term, it actually forms kind of a coating on the surface. 
And so what the implications of this are is that because of what phosphate is as a molecule, when it absorbs to the surface, it is negatively charged. And so this decreases the surface charge of these particles. Um, Surface charge is really important when we consider the stability of particles in aqueous solutions. So you may be familiar with the idea of opposites attract. So that same concept, when you take a lithium cobalt oxide nanoparticle and coat it with phosphate, it becomes negatively charged. And so it no longer attracts other lithium cobalt oxide nanoparticles. They actually repel each other the same way two south poles of a magnet would repel each other. And because of that, they stay in solution more freely. They don't aggregate or um, clump together, which causes them to fall out of solution. Instead, they're really dispersed within the aqueous system over longer time periods, which may change the types of organisms that it is able to interact with in, in the environment in aqueous systems. So they're, they stay, they might just like float around in the water more right. as opposed to clumping together and sinking to the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. So was there anything surprising or like extra cool that you felt about this doing this study? As the... Yeah, you know, it, it was sort of an interesting project to start because uh, as I mentioned, it's kind of one of our first attempts to look at this sort of interaction. And I actually drew a lot from the geochemistry community as I was preparing experiments and doing literature searching. These types of phenomena actually have been studied for naturally occurring metal oxides such as iron, and aluminum oxides for quite some time. But it was really fun to apply what has already been known about naturally occurring systems and apply it to something that was more complex. And so I think the most surprising part to me was just kind of how we can use a suite of different techniques to really build a nice picture about what's happening. It's really rare in chemistry and science in general that one technique is going to tell you all the information you need. So in doing this research, you know, I had to think, you know, what tools can I use to gather the information that I need to finish the story? And in that process, I got to be exposed to a lot of different instruments and techniques, which I think is one of one of the most fun parts about science is learning all those different techniques to help build your story. Do you think this study is going to have an effect on how batteries are made or disposed of? Like, are people going to be able to use this information directly? Or if not yet, then what do you think the next piece of research is needed to move in that direction to actually have like recommendations for people who use batteries or make batteries? That's a great question. Uh, to my knowledge, there hasn't been much that has been published on kind of the environmental implications of these materials outside of the work that the CSN has done. So I think our hope in general is that the work that we're doing and the conclusions that we're coming to can help inform a greater plan for disposal of these types of materials. But who knows, I guess, we'll kind of see. I think in general, the next step would be to try to build up complexity. So like I mentioned, when you're starting these types of studies, it's ideal to try and simplify the system so that you're only studying one or two variables. So that was the motivation for just looking at phosphate. 
But in actuality, the environment is much more complex than just a phosphate solution. And so while this is a really excellent first step in understanding potential environmental transformations of these materials, to really have an idea of what's going on, we'll have to continue to build up complexity to really model those environmental systems, as well as consider the timescales at which these interactions are important. As I mentioned, we know that there's both a short-term and a long-term implication of phosphate, and so it would be important to understand as you built up complexity if that changed sort of the interaction of phosphate and lithium cobalt oxide. Mm-hmm. So what you've shown is that the phosphate has an effect on the nanoparticles and they and it changes how they behave in in water. Do we know what that means in an environmental standpoint? Like, is that good? Is it bad? It, does it mean that those phosphates then are like floating around more than they would otherwise and that's going to promote these algae blooms or something? Do we do we know yet what the implications are of this? That's um, that's a really great question. So. When I think about this work, I kind of picture it in like a cycle where you have kind of nanoparticles and then the environment. And it's it's a constant loop of how do nanoparticles affect the environment? How does the environment affect nanoparticles? And because of that, it can, can become very complicated to study. I do think it's worthwhile to take you know, particles that have been exposed to phosphate and then do some more studies, um, you know, see if they have different biological impacts than particles that have not been pre-exposed to phosphate. That is one direction we could take to try and figure out what the actual impact on environmental or biological systems may be. It's also kind of funny because as we talked about earlier, too much phosphate can be bad too. So actually there's a lot of research being done on phosphate kind of sequestering So using porous materials, nanomaterials, metal oxides to actually sequester phosphate and try and decrease uh, contamination in aqueous systems. I don't think it makes sense to use lithium cobalt oxide for that kind of a task because we know that cobalt metal is not something we want to intentionally put into the environment. But it is kind of interesting to see the balance of the the particle effect and then the contaminant effect on on potential environments. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, Obviously, you were not the only author on this paper. So what was it like uh, kind of working with a group of collaborators on this project? Yeah, so a lot of the complex metal oxide work that's being done in the center, we collaborate with the Mason Group at University of Iowa, who do uh, computational studies or theoretical studies using a technique known as density functional theory or DFT. And it's been really awesome to interface with this group. We meet about once a month or so to discuss research progress and future directions, especially for the type of work that I'm doing, which is very kind of fundamentally focused of just kind of like, how does the surface of a material interact with something in water? It can be really useful to have the expertise of this theoretical group and be able to bounce ideas off of them, you know, try and simulate what's going on. Um, They've been really helpful as this work has progressed. Uh, While there are no DFT studies in this paper, it really did inform kind of how we approach the experiments and the way that we think about how this absorption occurs, which we kind of talk about in the discussion of the paper. This was also a 
collaboration with another member of my group, Curtis Green, who is our TEM or transmission electron microscopy expert in the group. And so he was able to obtain some really nice electron microscopy images of these particles, which allowed us to understand kind of the size and shape even better than we could with other microscopy techniques. And so that's another great thing about having a lot of people studying in the CSN within our research group is that we can collaborate with each other and, and provide some data for each other as we prepare our manuscripts. That's great. Well, we'll see if we can um, po- post a couple of those TEM images in the show notes for this episode. Oh, yes, yeah, so that's that a great idea. People can see it if they want. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's, I think, all we have time for. But thank you so much for talking to us about your article. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm sure hopefully we'll have you on the podcast again. All right. Thanks, Miriam. And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to Liz Laudadio for doing the interview with me for this episode. Be sure to check out our show notes to see those TEM images that we mentioned, as well as a link to the article that we were discussing. Liz's co-authors, who we mentioned in the interview, were Joseph Bennett, Curtis Green, Sarah Mason, and Robert Hamers. Our music is by PC3 and Dexter Britton. Thank you to the National Science Foundation for funding the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which produces this podcast. Our usual disclaimer, though, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. Want more Sustainable Nano? You can subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or listen to any of our episodes at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. We also have a blog with over 250 posts, mostly written by students in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which you can find at sustainable-nano.com. And you can reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook at Sustainable Nano, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, and we are on Instagram now, the perfect social media platform for audio. Maybe not, but there are some great photos on there from the CSN, and you should totally check it out. For those of you who listened to our previous episode with Jillian Biriak, we are looking for a tagline or sign-off for the podcast. What should I say so the end of the episode doesn't trail off into awkward silence? Uh, We've had a couple great suggestions so far, but I want to hear some more, so reach out to us and let us know what you think. In the meantime, thanks for listening again, and stay tuned for our next episode in just a couple of weeks. 